Let's go to our text this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2. Let me just uh, read this again. But you are a chosen, genera- excuse me, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. This is God's word to us this morning. Well, um, in our culture and society, nihilism is on the rise. It's one danger that we have as Christians is not just worldliness. We don't want to be worldly, but we also don't, don't want to buy into a philosophy called nihilism, which basically says life is meaningless. There's really no point or purpose or bigger thing that we're alive for. Nihilism basically says let's eat, drink, and be merry because we're going to die soon. So let's just live it up while we can. Life without purpose loses meaning. Um, But of all people in the world, Christians should live day by day with a deep sense of meaning, a deep sense of purpose. Nihilism should have no place in your life and in my life. Your life matters, and your life matters deeply. And when there's an overriding purpose in one's life, then one that encompasses everything, then life has meaning, and in fact, all of life has meaning. Every part of life has purpose. So we need to live with a sense of purpose. And we need a purpose that's bigger than us. We need a purpose that we couldn't just come up with on our own. And so that's what I want to talk to you about today. Living with an overriding, all-encompassing, entire world and life view purpose. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, Westminster Catechism is something that was written in the 1600s, used by the Presbyterian Church or Reformed Churches, but the Shorter Catechism, the second question asks this, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what are we alive for? What is our purpose? Why do we exist? The answer, is, the answer that's given is pretty good. It says this, the the reason we exist, the chief end of man, is to glorify God, you know how it ends, and to enjoy him forever. We exist to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to honor and glorify and magnify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God means to put a spotlight on God so that he is seen and known as glorious. We exist to do that. And to enjoy him forever means to really and truly find joy in God. To really enjoy him. We know what it's like to enjoy something. Last week for Father's Day, my my wife Actually, I think just my wife. I think she's the one that worked on it. She made me a banana cream pie. I really enjoy banana cream pie. Okay, I know what it's like to enjoy things, and so do you. We exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
And these two things have to go together. Glorifying God and enjoying him, they have to go together. You cannot really glorify God if you don't enjoy him. You can't. You can obey every command outwardly. You can do all that you think God requires of you outwardly. And if you do it begrudgingly with a bad attitude and not out of joy in God, it does not honor him. It doesn't show him to be glorious. In fact, it probably makes him look like a cruel taskmaster. On the other hand, if you say that you enjoy God without any sense or any desire to please him or any desire to do what he requires of you, you don't really enjoy God. You, you, you enjoy a God that you've made in your own image. We exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's basically what our text says today. The end of verse 9 tells us, gives us this all-encompassing life purpose. It says this, You exist that you may proclaim the excellencies of the God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You don't exist just to get ahead in life, just to make your way through life, just to build your kingdom here or whatever. You exist to proclaim the excellencies of God, the God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We see glory there, right? We exist to glorify God, to proclaim him, right? To speak of him, to declare who he is, what he's like, to tell others about him, to publish the truth of who our God is. That's why we exist. And I think you see the idea of enjoyment here. What specifically are we to proclaim? It's the excellencies of God. It's not that we tell people in a dry and bored sort of way, give them this dissertation of the attributes of God that would put them to sleep. No, we proclaim the excellencies of God. His glory, his goodness, how amazing he truly is. This is what we proclaim. His excellencies. We declare his fame and that can never be done in a disinterested way. The only way this can be done properly is when it's done with heart, when we're proclaiming the truth of God, the, excuse me, the truth of a God that we actually enjoy. This is why you and I are still alive, to proclaim the excellencies of the God who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is what needs to advance in the world. But it's not a matter of just flipping a switch, okay? It's not like, oh, now I see that I'm supposed to glorify God and enjoy him. Now I see I'm supposed to proclaim the excellencies of God. Let me start doing that. It doesn't work that way. Something needs to happen inside of us. Not only that, but somehow we need God to tell us who we are so that we can do what we've been called to do. Identity comes before activity, and we see this, that in this passage as well. You need to know who you are before you can ever carry out the purpose for why you are here. A U.S. ambassador needs to know that he or she truly is a U.S. ambassador in order for them to represent the United States and other countries. A man 
needs to know that he truly is a man and not a woman and not something in between, right? Not this genderless, sexless, androgynous thing, but a man if he's going to know what he's called to do and can actually do what a man is required to do by God. If you are a Christian, a fundamental change in identity has taken place for you. You are not the same person you used to be. A fundamental change in identity, and this is not an identity crisis. This is a good thing, okay? You have been transformed. Something radical has happened to you. All of the natural identifiers of ethnicity and skills that we have, interests we may have, education and family, things like that, they don't go away, but they're not what's most important about you. Okay? Being a DeGroat is not what's most important about me. Okay? So who are you? And why are you here? Those are the two questions I want you to leave today with crystal clarity on. Who are you? Why are you here? Okay? First, who are you? What is a Christian? We see five identifiers here in this passage about what a Christian is. Five ways Christians are referred to here. And I really think it's important that you take these today If you're a believer in Christ, you have the right to do this. You take these and say, this is who I am. This is talking about me. This is now who I am. So let me mention them, okay? And then we're going to go through them, just take a bit of time on each. This passage says you are a chosen race. It says you are a royal priesthood. It says you're a holy nation. It says you are a people of God's own possession, And it says you are a people that God has shown mercy to. Okay? So the first, you are a chosen race. This is an Old Testament reference from Deuteronomy 10.15 where Moses tells the Israelites that God had chosen them above all the other nations in the world. God said, you're my people. And it's not because you're so big and powerful or special because you're small and weak but you're my people, all right? Here's what Peter does. Peter takes that and applies it to the church. Peter is talking about the church here, the true Israel. You are a chosen race. Now, this new race is not about race the way that we typically talk about it, okay, which isn't always the most helpful or accurate. It's not about being red, yellow, black, or white, This race, this chosen race, is a new people from all the peoples of the world, from all the tribes. There's red, yellow, black, and white. There's all tribes, all languages, all peoples, and all nations that have been chosen out of the fallen race of Adam and placed in Christ. So what gives us this identity is not that we belong to a certain race, but rather that we are chosen by God. God, you are a chosen race, a new humanity in Christ. There are fundamentally two humanities, okay? Those that are in Adam and dead in their sins and those that are in Christ 
who have been raised from the dead and given new life. You, if you're in Christ, you're in the latter. You are a new humanity, a new chosen race in Christ. Now, I don't think enough stock is put in the fact that the Bible says God chose us. Um, sometimes when this is brought up, we just kind of glaze over it or we just want to enter into debate about it, what it means or what it doesn't mean or if God really chooses, that's not fair of him to do that or whatever. Usually when the Bible mentions God choosing us, it's meant to elicit praise, not speculation or debate. The Bible talks about this all over the place. And when I say God chose us, that we're a chosen race, what I mean is that God chose us individually and personally before we chose him. That's what the scriptures teach. God chose us before we chose him. Ephesians 1.4 makes it clear, I think. It says God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's quite a long time ago. That's way before you chose him, right? He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Here's what Jesus said in John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now some might think, wait a second, I did choose him. I remember the time. I remember when I chose him. Okay? I think the point Jesus is making here is that, because that's true, if you believe in Christ, there was a moment you chose to follow Jesus, you chose to believe in him, but Jesus is saying he chose you first, okay? And the only reason you chose him was because he first chose you. There's a song, um, oh, I can't remember the name of it. We, I think we sang it a few times. Um, all I Have is Christ, written by Sovereign Grace Music. It's a fantastic song. It says this, If you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. And that's true. If God had not loved us when we were dead in our sins, we would still resist him. God chose you out of the fallen race of mankind in Adam and united you to Christ, the head of this new race. Our lives, therefore, have profound meaning because of this. Listen, our lives now have profound meaning because of this. You and I are being restored and renewed in the image of Christ. Listen, if all that mattered was getting saved and going to heaven, then God, it's like, God, just get it over with, right? Just save us and kill us and take us to heaven or whatever. But no, God is at work in renewing redeemed men and women so that we grow up and become more like the head of our new race, Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a new humanity in Christ. But then Peter goes on to say, you are also a royal priesthood. You're a royal priesthood or kingly priesthood. 
a priesthood. What's that all about? Well, priests offer sacrifices. Okay? Priests offer sacrifices. In fact, earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter says that Christians are being built up to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So priests, as part of this priesthood, we, are, we offer spiritual sacrifices. Okay? Thankfully, we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore. Jesus did away with that, with his one sacrifice on the cross. But we do offer spiritual sacrifices of praise to God. Now, I think we sometimes misunderstand this idea of spiritual sacrifices. Here's what I mean by that. I think we wrongly assume that there's this realm of spiritual activity over here. You know, in that bucket, we, uh, there's prayer and reading our Bibles and evangelizing and going to church and singing worship songs. And then there's all this other non-spiritual stuff over here that we do with our hands and our feet and our backs and so forth. But I think that's wrong. Spiritual activity in the New Testament is activity connected to the Holy Spirit. Okay? It's activity that we do empowered by the Holy Spirit. So, of course, that would include a whole range of things that we might not normally think of as spiritual things. Therefore, to be a spiritual person is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and to be empowered by him to do whatever we do. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Eating, drinking, putting up a fence, mowing the yard, changing a diaper, all of these things for God's glory. Which means all of these things are to be done as spiritual activities. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12. He says, Therefore, brothers, I appeal to you, based on the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What are we to present to God? Our prayers and worship songs? No, our bodies, which, of course, we use to sing and pray. But we present our bodies, our entire selves to God because this is our spiritual worship. In other words, what you do with your hands and your fingers and your legs and your backs and your necks and your ears and your eyes and your nose and your taste buds, all of it, when presented to God, is spiritual. And so as Christians... We are to do everything we do as sacred. As something that's to be offered to God. Of course, there are certain things we can't do. We cannot offer to God because it's wicked. But in service to God, we do. We take care of our responsibilities. We do everything we do as a sacrifice of praise to God. And therefore, as Christians, we do all of this as priests as part of a royal priesthood. Martin Luther, who was a a reformer in the 1500s, one of the truths that he's at least credited with rediscovering, 
I don't know, he came up with this term anyways, uh, is the priesthood of all believers. Ever heard of that before? The priesthood of all believers. Of course, this was over against the Roman Catholic understanding of priests and, right, the, the, the priests, the, those that are, do all the spiritual things and the people in the pews, right? In, in their view, they had this strict line of demarcation where the priests and the bishops and the cardinals do all the spiritual stuff like interpret the Bible and perform the mass and so forth. And the regular people, they don't do spiritual stuff like that. Martin Luther said they got it all wrong. All believers are part of the priesthood. Every single one of them. Now, if you're a Christian, I really want that to sink in today for you. You're part of this royal or kingly priesthood. Every believer is a priest unto God. And every believer and all of their work is no better or worse than another. The pastor and the plumber are both priests to God. Okay? The evangelist and the engineer are both priests to God. The missionary and the machinist are priests to God. The preacher and the painter are both priests to God. If you are in Christ, you are part of this royal priesthood. You are a kingly priest in Christ. Amen? The next thing Peter says is you're a holy nation. A holy nation. Israel was God's nation in the Old Testament, literally a nation, an ethnos, set apart as God's. The word nation here, I think, more generally means a multitude or company of people brought together. The emphasis is on the word holy. You are a holy people brought together. You are God's holy people. Now, one thing that jumped out at me this week is I found it interesting. This is not a command to be holy. Okay? It's not saying be holy. Now, there are commands like that in the Bible. In fact, there's lots of them. And we should take those very seriously. 1 Peter 1.15 says, As the one who calls you is holy, so you also be holy in all of your conduct. That's a big deal. Hebrews 12.14 puts a finer point on it. It says, Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So holiness is something we are to strive for. But this is not a command here. This is saying you are a holy nation. This is saying you are holy. The emphasis is not on something that we do, but on something that God has done. To be holy in this sense means to be set apart from that which is common. It means to be set apart by God for God. And if you're in Christ, if you believe in Jesus Christ, God has done that. He has said, okay, you're mine. I'm setting you apart for my purposes. We are set apart by God from all that is common, from all that is sinful, 
for his purposes. And of course, that's exactly what the church is. I mean, it's not, it's not the same word, but the, the Greek word ekklesia, which is translated in our Bibles, church or assembly or something like that, it means those who have been called out of the world and called to be a people set apart for God. You are a holy nation. Next, Peter says you're, you are God's possession. You are a people for God's own possession. God bought you, and therefore, he owns you. You are not your own anymore. You've been purchased by the blood of Christ. Peter says earlier in his letter, chapter 1, he says, you have not been redeemed um, by things like gold or silver. They couldn't do it. It required the blood of Christ to redeem you, to purchase you, to make you gods. And because God has redeemed us by the blood of Christ, we are in fact gods. And so, you don't belong to yourself anymore. And not only that, you don't belong to the devil anymore. Hallelujah. Amen. That's good news. The strong man... Jesus talks about in the Gospels has been bound and in your case plundered and you are now God's. Peter, James, John, Jude, all of the New Testament writers glory in being called bondservants of Christ. They love being, they love referring to themselves as bondservants or bondslaves of Jesus Christ. He was their master and they gladly submitted to his lordship. They belong to Christ and so do we. This is who you are. If you, again, I, I would keep going back to this. If you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus, you are not your own anymore. You belong to him. Amazingly, it can be said about God that he belongs to us as well. It's amazing. Now, we could never say that unless God told us it was true. But thankfully, he has. One of the great promises, maybe the great promise of the new covenant, is where God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And as the people of God, you are his treasured possession. He loves you. You belong to him. Finally, Peter says, you are a people who have been shown mercy, or more, I guess what he actually says is, you are a people who have received mercy. Verse 10 says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, I wonder, I, I, I find this helpful, okay? Because it's, it's saying that there's a time when we had not received mercy. There was a time when we were lost, and we were, Reed mentioned this in the opening this morning, we were rightfully exposed to God's judgment because of our sin. But then, God in his mercy rescued us 
and we received mercy. If you are in Christ, I love this. It doesn't, it, it puts it in the past tense. It's like, a, it's like past perfect tense. You have received mercy. The God of the universe has been merciful to you because of the once for all shed blood of Christ. And because of that, Christians, think about this, Christians can wake morning by morning. In fact, I want you to do this this next week. I wonder if it'll help you. We can wake morning by morning saying his mercies are new this morning. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. We're not looking for another sacrifice. We're not trying to atone for our own sins. It's already done. And if you're in Christ, if you're truly a Christian, you can say, I've received mercy. So, Christian, who are you? You are a chosen race, a new humanity united to Christ. You are a kingly priest, part of a priesthood. You are a people set apart for God's purpose as a holy nation. You are God's treasured possession, and you are a people who have been shown great mercy. That's who you are. Why are you here then? I hope it's obvious. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's it. The word proclaim here is an awesome word. The Greek word exangelo means to tell out or to proclaim abroad. It means to publish fully. It, makes, it means to make known completely. It's more than just speaking. It is speaking. It is declaring with our mouths, but also with our lives. I was talking to Alex a little bit ago. He had this King James Bible on, his, on the chair next to him. Sorry, I'm not trying to call it. Anyways, and it reminded me of this verse in the King James Version. And I know it because we sang a song in the church I grew up in based off the King James Version of 1 Peter 2, 9, and 10. All right? That's how I know it. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people, a peculiar people. And then it says this, that you might show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That you might proclaim, that you might show forth, that you might declare with your lips and with your lives. That we might show forth or make known the excellencies of God. And this understanding goes well with our identity we just talked about. It covers everything. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We've been shown mercy. We're a new race. We are holy. We are priests offering sacrifices of praise to God in all that we do. When you're pulling the weeds up in a garden, when you're making dinner for your family, when you're serving a table at a restaurant, Jade Garden, when you're writing code for a new operating system at work, when you're writing an insurance policy, when you're preparing to lead a Bible study, praying or sharing the, the gospel with your neighbor, you are proclaiming the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness. All of life matters. Every 
single part of it. All of life is meant to proclaim how great our God is. And quite frankly, because we've lived this dualistic life where we have this spiritual part of us over here and this other part of us over here that we do in the real world, that's why in our society, I'm not saying that's the only reason, but that's part of the reason why we're in the mess we're in. As believers, we ought to be believers through and through in every part of our lives. We've been brought out of blindness to his glory, and now we see his glory. We've been brought out of darkness into his marvelous light, and if we see, and if we see his excellencies, then we are to proclaim it in all of our lives. Nothing is pointless. Trials and difficulties are opportunities for for us to proclaim the excellencies of God. Okay? The skills that God has given us to work are opportunities to proclaim his excellencies. I think of those, I can't remember the names, someone might shout them out here, I don't know, but the two men that were filled with the Spirit and given skill to help build the tabernacle, they were full of the Spirit to do that for carpentry work, to magnify God. The manner in which we work, as to the Lord and not to men, is an opportunity to proclaim His excellencies. The manner in which we work, even with an unjust boss, is an opportunity for us to proclaim His excellencies. And of course, the most obvious way we proclaim his excellencies, the one that probably comes to our minds immediately is we proclaim the excellencies of Christ to a world of blind people, blind in their sin, blinded by the devil. The God of this world blinded the minds of unbelievers, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. We are here to proclaim the excellencies of Christ to blind people in the hopes of, that they also may see his excellencies and worship and praise and enjoy the God that we worship and praise and enjoy. Listen to what Jesus said to Paul in Acts 26, 18. Because there's something here for us. We think, you know, only God can open the the eyes of the blind. I mean, spiritually blind is what I mainly mean. Those that don't, those that are unsaved. And that's true, that, that God decisively does it. But guess what? He uses people to do it. Here's what God said, or here's what Jesus said to the Apostle Paul. He said, I'm sending you to the Gentiles, Paul, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We are to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, which means we need to know Christ and rejoice in him and enjoy his excellencies so that we may do that most effectively. We need to think and feel that Jesus actually is excellent. Christians sometimes get a bad rap for being angry, unhappy, sour people. And let's face it, there's plenty to get mad about in the world, all right? There just is. 
Um, and, and, and to fear God is to hate evil. So all of that, right? But I think angry people, excuse me, I don't think angry people are going to proclaim the excellencies of God very effectively, or quite frankly, at all. But if you really see Christ as excellent, there's things that'll make you angry, but you won't mainly be angry. You'll mainly be exulting in Christ, and you will proclaim him to those around you. Listen, you and I talk about what matters to us most, what we're most excited about, right? We do. So, if you see Jesus as excellent, you won't mainly be angry. You won't be sour. You won't be down in the dumps all the time. How could you be? How could you be? You have an excellent and glorious Savior in Christ. So, I want to close by just giving some tips. I don't know if tip's the right word, but for where we start with this. Where do we start with, how do we do this? Okay? You're, who are you? You're a chosen, gener- chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, etc. Why are you here to proclaim the excellencies of God? How do we start? How do we do this? How do we grow in this? I just have three points of application, okay? The first, okay, really basic. Worship on the Lord's Day, okay? Worship on the Lord's Day. Don't see worship as optional, but as essential, okay? And I don't just mean attend church. I don't, mean, I don't just mean show up. I mean come and worship. Come and declare and praise the excellencies of our God. Worship is a weapon, and when we gather on the Lord's day, our worship should be robust and joyful, God-exalting and clear about the greatness and glory of God. We must not just come together and sing about ourselves. My goodness. Just songs that would make us feel better about us. Oh my gosh. Spare me that. We don't need that. We, need, we want to sing about the greatness and the glory and the excellencies of Christ. The excellencies of God should be run through our prayers and our songs and our preaching and our conversation when we gather. Of all things that you prioritize throughout the week, and there are things that we do have to prioritize things, worship on the Lord's Day should have first place. This is where proclaiming the excellencies of the God who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is where it starts, okay? Gathering together on the Lord's day in worship of our God. Number two, out rejoice evil, okay? Proclaim God's excellencies in the face of evil, okay? It's easy to see the things that are bad in our society. It's easy to see it. It's so easy to see it, okay? What we ought to do is loudly proclaim the goodness and excellencies of God 
in the face of that. We ought to rejoice more in the grace and goodness and excellencies of God than the adversaries of God rejoice in their sin. Okay? So, it's Pride Month. LGBTQ plus, whatever is added to that, I'm not sure, um, is going on right now. Christians rightly are bothered by that. We ought to be. But we ought to seek to rejoice in and elevate the truth that they deny. Okay? The glory and goodness of God and his design in creating men and women in his image for his glory. The glory of marriage between a man and a woman for life. We ought to elevate that and exalt in that and proclaim the excellencies of the God who designed it. We ought to proclaim the excellencies of the God who designed family, the the goodness of God in children, the goodness of manhood and womanhood, masculinity and femininity. Listen, everything good can become toxic, but there's a true masculinity and femininity that we ought to exalt and declare God's goodness in his design of these things. I already said this, the goodness of God in bearing and having children, adopting children. Those on the other side know how important children are. That's why they want all of ours, right? Number three, and last, okay? So worship on the Lord's day, outrejoice evil. Number three, load your mind and heart up with how God has been merciful to you. Load your heart and your mind up with how God has been merciful to you. God, excuse me, we talk about what is most on our minds. Okay? If what is most on your minds are your problems, that's what people will hear from you. If what's most on your minds is your frustration, that's what people are going to hear if what's most on your minds is, you know, the, your, your hobby that you just so love and enjoy, that's what people, your, your favorite show you've been binge-watching, that's what people are going to hear about. If what's most on your mind is the excellencies of Christ, that's what people are going to hear. So, load your mind and heart with the great things God has done for you in Christ. Commit to memorizing Scripture homework. (laughs) Write down promises in God's word or truths. Even, let's start with this passage. You're a chosen race. God chose you and placed you in Christ. You're a royal priesthood. God says your life matters. He he loves your sacrifices of praise to him. You're a holy nation. God says you're holy. You're set apart for me. You're a, a people for his own possession. He purchased you through the blood of Christ. Commit to memorizing scripture that will help you in this truth-packing endeavor of packing your mind and your heart with beautiful and glorious truths of how God has been merciful to you. I think of the demoniac, the man who had like a bunch of demons. Um, Jesus uh, came across the Sea of Galilee into 
the Gerasenes, and this man saw him at a distance and came running to Jesus. This was the kind of person, you know, all those scary stories around the, uh, the campfire as kids. This one outdid all of those, okay? This, this is the guy that they would they'd bind up in chains. He'd break the chains apart, howling, running around naked in the, among the tombs. I mean, just, a, okay, quite a sight. He came to Jesus, and Jesus said, what is your name? The man said, my name. He said, I'm Legion, for we are many. The man had many, many demons. Jesus delivered him completely. I love the turn just the turn of events. The man's running around naked, out of his mind. After Jesus delivers him, he's got clothes on. He's sitting at the feet of Christ, listening to him teach. Well, the man was stunned. He wanted to follow Jesus. He said, Jesus, I will go with you wherever you go. And I love Jesus' response, and it's his response to all of us. Not because we've been delivered like that, necessarily, but it's his, it's his response to all of us. He says, no. Go home to your friends and family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Do you know what God has done for you? Does it make you want to sing? Do you know that he's had mercy on you? Then fill up, not with vague thoughts, okay? Vague thoughts don't help very much. Just like, oh, I know that he's good. He's been good to me. He's been good to me. I'm saying like specific things. Load up your mind with Bible truths, transformative truths. Load up your mind and your heart with these things that proclaim to you how God has been merciful to you that you may proclaim to others the excellencies of the God who's brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen? Let's pray.